Again, wrestling fans, to another edition of Classic Wrestling Memories. So this is another one of those where it's never fun to do these episodes because we usually have to talk about one of the many stars and wrestlers and personalities over the years who have joined that great battle royal in the sky. And this is another one of those episodes. This will be dedicated to the life and career of the one and only Scott Hall, who has probably had one of the most memorable runs anybody could have in the 1990s between WWE and WCW, but he also had a long history breaking in long before that. Uh, so here to talk the career of the late, great Scott Hall, joining me as usual from the nice soft padded cell in South Kakalaki, Crazy Train Jonathan Bullock. All aboard, ladies and gentlemen. So uh, we, we got the news uh, about a month ago as of this recording. We are doing this show in April of 2022 about the passing of Scott Hall, and he's one of those guys. He had hit WCW when I started watching wrestling, and I was just smart enough to notice when these Razor Ramon packages were showing up in WWE. I'm like, hey, wait a minute, that's the Diamond Stud. <laughs> now, were, were you familiar with his career before yes. the Diamond Stud? Or Oh, yes, yes, because he, of course, he, he broke into the business in the early to mid-'80s in Florida, and we weren't getting Florida television much uh, here in the Carolinas at that time. But it wasn't long after, I want to say like 85, 86, he and Dan Spivey entered into the Crockett Promotions mm-hmm. as a tag team called the American Starship, where he was, I believe, Coyote and Dan Spivey mm-hmm. was Eagle. Correct, yeah. And they, were, they weren't the Road Warriors, but they were of that same ilk, you know, big power team. And they didn't get a whole lot of a push. I think they kind of fizzled out around lower mid-card, but neither one of them got a lot of mic time. Usually you would see them on Crockett television and tag matches, or maybe one of them was in a six-man tag, that kind of thing. So I was familiar with them. Of course, my first thought was, because this was after or around the time of, of Magnum TA's car wreck, was that Scott was taking the same approach that Magnum TA was is that these dudes are like Tom Selleck <laughs> with the yeah. mustache and everything. And of course, Tom was definitely a sex symbol in that era. I think one year he was voted sexiest man alive. So if you looked like him, it would kind of make sense to play that up if you wanted to be a, a popular wrestler. Yeah, definitely. Especially if you could grow that mustache. I mean, that he is definitely a mustache king. Oh yeah. He's got one of the greatest mustaches in the history of wrestling. And I think if I remember right, they might have gone over to Japan as a duo with that working deal Crockett had with, with Japan. Of course, Dan stayed over there and would come back years later to form the Skyscrapers with Sid. Mm-hmm. And the next time I remember Scott popping up on my radar was in the absolute dying days of AWA mm-hmm. on ESPN, where he and, and, and Kurt Henning were uh, tag team partners and the tag team champions were Vern. Have you seen any of that stuff with that stuff being on the network and ESPN Classics and whatnot? The main thing I remember was when they did the Russell Rock Rumble and right. uh, the rap with that, because that was around the time the Bears were in the Super Bowl. And of course, there was the Super Bowl shuffle. And that's what that was a takeoff yeah. of, was everybody doing right. their own little rap. So you have Kurt Hennig, and I think it's just Big Scott Hall or something like that. And, yeah. it, and yeah. it, it's funny because there's varying degrees of silliness and awfulness because you have Greg Gagne trying to rap and... 
Greg Gagne may be <laughs> the one man in wrestling who might be whiter than I am. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you can only yeah, he's, give an idea of yeah. how his rap timing would be. His rhythm was not not good. <laughs> right. <laughs> But as far as uh, yeah, bre- breaking in, he started in Florida, like, like you said. I believe he was trained by uh, Hiro Matsuda. And when you look at the list of names that Hiro Matsuda trained, he didn't train as many people as, say, Vernganya or people like that. But, I mean, Hulk Hogan, Lex Luger, I believe Great Muda was trained by Hiro. My, one, of, one of my friends, Sean Royal of the, of the New Breed fame, was trained by him. Okay. So, yeah, there have been a lot of guys that got signed and, and got pushes in the big companies at Hiro. Yeah. Did, did you ever get disappointed that Dusty Rhodes never elected president? Because of the new breed? Yeah. A little bit. Or what was what they call their time machine, the flux incapacitor? Yeah, <laughs> something like. Uh, and to explain the reference, for those who might be hearing it, the new breed were a tag team in the 80s in, in Crockett, and their gimmick was that they were from the future, and they would refer to Dusty Rhodes as Mr. President. Right. So, yeah. Then in the future, and they, they travel back to our times due to the flux incapacitor as opposed yeah. to the flux capacitor from the Back to the Future movies. <laughs> and knowing both Todd and Sean, pretty sure Todd came up with that. Because <laughs> as, as Sean has openly said in a, in a shoot interview on, I want to say it was for Wade Keller a few years ago, first time Sean had done anything like that in forever, was, uh, man, I didn't care about any of that crap. I just wanted to get drunk, make money, and, 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 and meet rats. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> if you know Sean, yeah. But back to Scott Hall, he was trained under... Hiro Matsuda, uh, he lived in Florida, so that's probably why he started in championship wrestling from Florida. And like you said, American Starship, they didn't really weren't around that long, but then that's when they went to the AWA. Well, I shouldn't, shouldn't say they, though. And they, they didn't really see that much success there, I, I, but Scott Hall went to the AWA after that, and like you said, had the, uh, the Magnum PI look. And then I think from there, he went to Jerry Jarrett's CWA in Memphis. And uh, something that I noticed about this time here, pretty much across the board, he was a babyface during this, probably yep. because he was a handsome dude with a nice mustache, had a good body. I'm going to mm-hmm. play a uh, promo here from Scott Hall in Memphis. And I actually think it's a, it's a pretty good promo, but it's definitely not what you would be used to if you've heard grew Scott up on Hall promo. Yeah, yeah, if you grew up on Razor Ramon and, and all that. This is going to sound a, a little bit different for you. So this is Scott Hall as a babyface, one of his first appearances in Memphis. And it's definitely a very different sounding Scott Hall here. Well, I'll tell you, I just got back from Japan last week. I had a really successful month-long tour over there. And, you know, 88's just right around the corner, New Year coming our way. And it's not by mistake that you see a lot of the top names in the wrestling profession. Everybody seems to be descending on the Mid-Southern area. I just want to add my name to the list. I think that all the fans in the area, all the fans watched on TV are in for a real big treat in 88. Now, I think you're looking at it in a vacuum. There's nothing bad about that promo. I think I was actually a pretty good promo, but it's like right. you're, you're, you're so used to the Scott Hall that would, that would show up a few years later. And, of course, he looks kind of like Rusty Jones with the mustache and kind of got a little bit of a mullet look there. But it's, it's, just, it's such a radical departure of what he'd become a few years later. Oh, yeah, without uh, doubt. Yeah, he did. Then he also alluded to that interview what I was talking about earlier that him and Dan left Crockett, went to went to Japan. Dan stayed in Japan. He came back to the states. Now I don't know if it was around here or if it was before this time, but we really can't talk the career of Scott all without bringing this up because it's something that followed him and he could say haunted him for his entire career. Which was there was an incident at a bar, a place that he was working at as a bouncer, which 
wound up leading to him essentially, not intentionally, but but killing a man. I mean, I don't. I'd, I'd heard there was a gun involved or something about there was a gun that was struggled over. But I don't even think it went to court because it was decided even before it got there, even right. before he was indicted, that it was self defense. Correct. Yes. Yeah. So, so he, he didn't do anything illegal. And I think people who know about what happened figured that he was justified in what happened. But at the same time, he took the life of another man and there was PTSD involved in there. And I think it's really what led to depression and mental issues for the rest of his life, quite frankly, more, more than just his career. I, I'd heard that yeah, for yeah. years. Like you probably even dating yeah. back to around the time he was still Ezra's remote. You know, when you see something, when you hear something like that, it's quite easy to understand now why he had the well-documented substance abuse issues he had throughout. And um, sometimes, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, frantic, I guess would be mm -hmm. a good word. Personality he could have at times. I know that, that when he got to Charlotte to work for the Crockett's a few years after that, there was a concern by the front office there, you know, with Dusty booking and everything, because this was fairly fresh. So to kind of help him get on his feet and knowing they couldn't pay him as much as they would other guys, he was working uh, part-time at Crockett Park, which is the baseball stadium that the Crockett's owned, you know, where the, the minor league team there in Charlotte played, mm -hmm. the Charlotte O's. Yeah. Same, same venue that they ran the first Great American Bash at, Nikita and Flair in the main event. So I think this was a well-known thing in the business early on in his career. And some companies he worked for were a little more proactive than others at trying to help him deal with that. But there's only so much you can do as, as, a, as a business owner and employer. Don't you agree? Right, yeah. It, it, it eventually, people have to take care of themselves, I guess, for lack of a better term. That may sound a little yeah. harsh, but I think you know what I'm trying yeah. to say there. Yeah, but I think I think where, where the Crockett scenario went was, I don't know, I can't verify this, but a big guy like him, he has experience working as a bouncer. He gets to a new town like Charlotte, and he's thinking, I'll just go bounce again. They're probably thinking, no, 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 no. Right, right, right exactly. <laughs> That's the last, last thing we need to let you do. You do not need to be exposed to that. So let's get him another job that he can supplement his wrestling income that still involves his strengths physically. And, you know, so. Mm-hmm. Had him work on the grounds and stuff in, in, in the baseball park. Now, while in Memphis, this is where Hall finally saw success as a single star because he was getting pushed. But since he was an, well, outsider, see what I did there? Yeah, uh, I did. He, he'd only get pushed so far in the car because Jerry Lawler and Bill Dundee, they were going to be the top guys always. And Jerry, for good reason. They were right, drawn, right. so why not, right? But if you were a baby face in Memphis, the the highest you were going to get on the card is you were probably going to tag with one of them probably against the other one yep. <laughs> at, at some point. <laughs> so now Jerry, That's how Jeff Jarrett got his first push, was tagging with Lawler. You know? Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. with, uh, with the, the Moondogs run, I think, as well. Yeah. First but, time uh, they non-WCW or WWF. Feud actually won Feud of the Year and Pro Wrestling Illustrated. I yeah. think was that feud. Yeah, I had like that, ninety, ninety-one, something like that. Yeah, I had that issue for the longest time. But uh, somewhere after this, after the tours with New Japan and the stint in Memphis, Hall finally saw work on a national stage when he signed with WCW. And this is really when his first heel run came that I that I know. Of. Maybe he was a heel in Japan. I don't know, but I don't know. Big uh, white guys in Japan tend to be gaijins, tend to be baby mm, faces because yeah, they love them. Yes, yeah, yeah, definitely. And this is where I first saw him, like I said, at the top of the, the show here, because Diamond Dallas Page was his manager, and he was repackaged as the Diamond Stud, 
And this is also where he met and became real-life best friends with Kevin Nash. And Kevin Nash was Vinny Vegas at this time. He was the great Oz before that. Yes, as in Wizard of Oz, because Ted Turner owned the TV rights to a lot of movies, and they were trying to pair that up with wrestling, which I think is one of those things I can see it working on paper, but not necessarily working creatively. It's one of those things where if you know wrestling and know movies, you can see how they can only go together so well, because otherwise you wind up with stuff like uh, RoboCop with Sting. You know, It's part of the reason why why Turner didn't have, well, first, like Vince did. Mm Mm-hmm. But also on top of that, he he had access through his cable kingdom to a lot of music and movies. And stuff. I mean, I remember at that around that same time, the Steiners were coming to the ring to welcome the jungle, wow. Guns N' Roses. The mm-hmm. Samoan SWAT team was coming to the ring to uh, the, the theme from Halloween, the John Carpenter. You know, synthesizer. Mm-hmm. Vince would have never done that. And he would right. pay for he would go pay for the copyrights. Well, Turner didn't mm-hmm. have to. He, he he owned the rights to Oz and, and and had the connections to get copyrighted music like. The Halloween theme and, and, and Welcome to the Jungle. So, yeah. Right, right. Makes sense. So he really didn't do that much in WCW as the Diamond Stud. I, I know we talked about him in one of the reviews we did of Halloween Havoc because he was in that Chamber of Horrors match. With, the uh, infamous with Chamber of Horrors match. <laughs> yeah, there's a reason why there's only been one of them. But uh, around 91, I think maybe 92, that's when he signed with WWE and became Razor Ramon. It was 1992. He made his debut as, as Razor Ramon. I believe the story goes he'd actually pitched two characters to WWE at, at, at this point. Razor Ramon, and then I think there was another one that was going to be some sort of worker of some, so like somebody that had this the, the different job. Because it's around the time so many characters in WWE, so many wrestlers, it's like they had this gimmick like they had a side job. Which I always thought was... Yeah, you had the Goon and T.L. Hopper and Sparky Plug and Dupe the Dunkster Drossy and yeah. Mm -hmm. It it, it was one of those things I couldn't help but think, even with the cynical mind I had as a uh, teenager at the time, I'm like, okay, so do they just not make enough money wrestling that they have to take these side jobs (laughs) to make ends meet? I don't know. Well, at least they made Bob Holly seem like stock car racing was a hobby he did on the weekends as opposed to how he made his money. Yeah, (laughs) and and there does seem to be a correlation, especially in the South, between NASCAR fans and wrestling fans. So I guess that that kind of works. Three three R's of the South, buddy. Racing, mm -hmm. wrestling, and rock and roll. (laughs) Yeah, and just I always thought of the absurdity of Jeff Jarrett somehow thinking that becoming a champion in WWE would further his country music career. Yeah. Which just makes no sense, but that's that's Jeff Listen, Jarrett. Completely off the topic. If you ever get a chance to listen to Bruce Pritchard's "Something to Wrestle With" podcast, go back to his episode from a few years ago about Jeff Jarrett's run in the WWF and his stories about when they went and did those vignettes in Nashville and nobody knew who they were. They're hilarious. Hey, Bruce, whether you like Bruce Pritchard or not, you, you cannot deny the dude can do great voices. <laughs> yeah, he does yeah, great impressions. So that was that. That's what started the trend of him and. Conrad singing beat with my baby tonight. (laughs) (laughs) Now, of course, Razor Ramon was inspired by Tony Montana from Scarface, but there is a lot from the Razor Ramon character that carried with Scott for the rest of his career, really, because quite frankly, I think it was DDP said, aside from the accent and the the gold chains, Razor Ramon is Scott Hall. They're just, they were one and the same. And you can see that in the NWO days as well. I think it actually even started before that. I think if you go back and look at the Diamond Studs run, that's when he started the toothpick. Mm-hmm. That's when he he shaved the mustache off. He yeah, started had, had wearing the five the, the days slick, growth or so. Yeah, 
Yeah, he had the, the slick back hair instead of like the kind of the, the, the curly hair he had in the 80s. And that's why I, as a fan who was familiar with Scott Hall from Crockett and AWA, took me a second to realize it was Scott Hall was the Diamond Stone. Mm-hmm. Because he, he obviously had the size and the builds, but was I mean, clean shaven, the, 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 the dyed hair that was slicked back, the toothpick, different attitude because he was a heel and not a baby face. It took me probably two or three times to see in the Diamond Stud to go, oh, that's Scott Hall. Okay, yeah. But I, my understanding on, on the Razor Ramon gimmick is Vince McMahon himself is a big fan of the Scarface movie. I, I can see that, so, yeah. So the idea of having a character inspired by Tony Montana, it really appealed to him. Yeah. It, he, he realized this guy, what he heard him do, the, the Cuban accent, could probably pull it off. Yeah, you know? and and he used the, the phrase, say hello to the bad guy, which is itself a modified Tony Montana quote from what yeah. was it, say goodnight to he the bad hello. guy, I think. Yeah. And he says, say hello to my little friend when he, when yeah. he in, the, in the final scene when he gets killed. Yeah. Yeah. I think all of the, our listeners are familiar enough with Vince McMahon that it's not hard to believe that he is a fan of the Scarface movie. <laughs> right. <laughs> and this also brought really the first high profile feud I think he had in his career because Razor Ramon, he would say that he was oozing machismo and, well, you already have Macho Man Randy Savage on the roster. Anybody who knows me right. knows that Randy Savage is my favorite all-time wrestler. So it was just a natural thing that those two would cross paths. So mm-hmm. by the fall of 1992, Razor was headlining pay-per-views. Uh, he challenged Bret Hart for the WWF title. I think it was at the Royal Rumble. That's the same Royal Rumble that, that Flair won the World won the, uh no, that was that year before that. Sorry, never mind. Yeah, yeah. Flair won the year before. This would have been the one that was Flair's final rumble before going back to WCW, I think, because he was doing right, a feud right. with Kurt Hennig. I, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. There's so many things that fall in line here. You remember the WWF is in a major transitional flux at this time. Flair's just come in. He They're feuding in with Savage because Hogan's kind of on the outs with the company. I think Yokozuna starts around the same time, too. Look at all the pieces you got together. You got, like you said, Machismo. Macho Man. So there's naturally a feud. Well, Flair's feuding with Macho too, and there's Bobby Heenan is is is, is and then Kurt were managing Flair. Well, Kurt's friends with Scott because tagged with him about seven years before that. So there's a yeah. lot of pieces falling into place. He has the AWA ties, which guys like Heenan they have AWA ties. Lawler comes in about this point, and Lawler and him have 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 the ties from Memphis. So a lot of things are starting to line up now behind the scenes. That, you don't, as a fan, think of a, on, on the surface at first, but they kind of make sense when you stop, take a step back and look at it all. Definitely, because uh, this was also the time when Warrior had made, I think it was his first comeback, after he got yeah. fired the first time, and they were doing the Warrior-Savage main event at SummerSlam, and then Warrior was supposed to team with Savage against Flair and Razor, and then Warrior got fired again, so they actually turned Kurt Babyface, Mr. Perfect, to team him with Savage, and I think it was shortly after that, Flair beat Savage for the title, and then Hitman beat Flair. And that's when Kurt first came out of retirement, because at, at that point, he the reason he was managing Flair was because he was collecting on his insurance policy from Lloyd's of London because it was back injury, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, 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 definitely. And that was, I think the on-screen thing was, was that somehow Bobby was trying to keep perfect in the background because I think he was getting more money from Flair or something like that. But it's one of those things that, I don't want to say it was ahead of its time, but they basically did the entire story of the babyface turn in one night in an episode of right. Primetime Wrestling, the show that predated Monday Night Raw. And uh, it's one of those things you could watch the highlights of it now and get it, but it's like at that time, 
you didn't do a, a baby face turn in one night. You did it over the course of like a month or two, usually, unless it's the sudden backstab, hit somebody from behind or, or something like heel type turn. Mm-hmm. It, it was one of those at, at the time I thought it was going too fast, but going back and looking at it from 2022 actually, eyes. Actually makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. You can see why, why they did that. But that was also, I think shortly after, I want to say it was Mania of 93, it was around the time he turned babyface. Because I remember he had the distinction, Scott Hall did, or uh, as Razor Ramon, I think he has the distinction of being Ted DiBiase's final opponent in WWE right. before Ted DiBiase left WWE and I think had a, I think he went to All Japan, I want to say. When, yeah, I, think I think he did. Because he had that friendship with, with, with Stan Hansen. Of course, Stan was the huge star in All mm-hmm. Japan. Right, right. She had so much else going on in the WWF at this time, too. He's, this is around the time Undertaker comes in, mm-hmm. and he's not close to what he would wind up being years later. He was truly was the dead man. And yeah. um, Aside from a drop kick, really, uh, he really, uh, he, most of his moves were just kind of old school, sweeping. Old school. Yeah, yeah. I think the only move he did then that he would still do later would be the old school uh, top rope walk, yeah. And then you also had Sean Waltman coming in as one, two, three kid. Mm-hmm. Coming off the tales of the Global Wrestling Federation as the Lightning Kid, and Paul Levesque is hired away from WCW or doesn't renew his contract, and is, is introduces the Hunter Hearst Helmsley character. Shanghai Pierce and Tex Slazinger come in, and they're repackaged as the Godwins. Mm-hmm. You know, boy, that was a repackaging. <laughs> yeah, I think this is around the same time that the Billy and Bart come in as the Smoking Guns. So, mm-hmm. yeah, a lot of change going on, and and. Through this change, he's Sean's quickly becoming the top guy in the company as Vince decides to phase out Savage and Flair and, and Piper and some of the older guys and to really go Hogan, with the youth movement. Yeah. yeah, and and the youth movement and decide Brett and Sean's gonna be his money making feud. And Sean's watching WCW television one night and sees this Vinny Vegas guy and he thinks he's hilarious. Well he was. Because you know, <laughs> he was. He was it was Kevin Nash being well, Kevin Nash. Right. And, you know, he goes to Vince with the power he has and says, hey, I'd like to bring this guy in. And they, they create the whole Diesel character and the idea, you know, the because this is also around the same time that Sean and Marty split and Sean goes sing, singles as a, as a heel and he's the Intercontinental Champ. Mm-hmm. And uh, Scott's made a friendship with Sean. He's like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm friends with Kev. I can get him to come in here, talk to Vince. Mm-hmm. And so then then Kev comes in and now guess what? You have the, the core of what will be known as the click. Exactly. You know, and I think, other guys that were known to be involved, at least ride with them, would be you know, the late Louis Piccoli, who was at the time would have been working as what, Boo, Boo Radley, probably? Yeah, or Rad Radford, I think he was. Rad Rad. Boo Radley was, was the gimmick name he used in Smoky Mountain. Yeah, from Cornette. To Mockingbird, yeah. Right, and then they changed it to Rad Radford, but it's the same character. And, mm-hmm. and you know, Cornette has this deal with Vince at the time. He's doing some some work for Vince as an announcer while also borrowing guys like Jeff Jarrett and Sean and Undertaker on Smoky Mountain shows. And Sean comes in, Sean gets, Sean, or Sean Waltman, I should say, one, two, three gig gets the big push with that great match he has with Brett on one of the first Raws, mm-hmm. where it's, it's a great example of, of, of you can go under and still be, still be more over coming out of a loss. Yeah. You, know? you, you look at all the little things Brett did in that match that helped put oh, him yeah. over. Like, I think Sean did, did like the arm drag or some sort of takedown and you hear Brett and you see Brett get up and you're like, you see in his eyes, he's like, whoa. I wouldn't expect him that. Oh, and even to this day, Sean Waltman talks about how much he owes Brett because Brett put him on the map with that match and how much he appreciates Brett for doing that. But like we said, I mean, I think everyone knows that now you've got all the, you've got Waltman, you've got 
Michaels, Kev, Scott, and Trips all there, and they all fast become friends. They all become uh, riding buddies. Jim Ross always said it was, is yes, they wield a lot of power for good and for bad. Sean, by his own admission, was extremely strung out on drugs at that point and very yeah. immature. Kev was kind of out for himself. Waltman was probably the best in-ring worker of all of them. Yeah. Hunter was the one who didn't drink and didn't do drugs, and he was the responsible one. So he could kind yeah. of, if you needed to talk to the clique as a behind-the-scene guy like Ross was, you, you went to Hunter. Yeah, he was the designated <laughs> but, driver, basically. So Yeah, basically, basically, basically. You know, Scott, there's that famous story of, of Sean getting beat up by the Marines. Where was it, Rochester, New York, or Syracuse, wherever it was? Yeah. And I, I remember Scott talking about that one time. It was an interview that him and Kev were doing together. And it, 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 Scott's like, me and Kev and – and Hunter, we were all gone. It was just Sean and Sean. And yeah, that's what mm-hmm. he, he said. That probably wouldn't have happened if me or her Hunter or her Kev were there. And he's probably right. Yeah, They're like definitely. thinking, but it is what it is. So, mm-hmm. and I, we probably could do a whole two more episodes on the click itself and the power they wielded for good or bad. Yeah, we probably I should. I mean, let's be honest. I don't think we need to go over it a lot. Everybody knows the power the click had. We know about the, the, the curtain call. Mm-hmm. We know about everything, and and it's it's just it's one of those things that's called the the dark underbelly of the wrestling business. It's definitely a look into how political a locker room can become. Right, and really that curtain call that they call it, you you, you can find it on YouTube. I, I can link in the show notes at classicwrestlingmemories dot com. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, that scene of them all hugging at the end, baby faces mm-hmm. and heels. Right. That was even in the mid '90s. That it really it put Triple H in the doghouse for a couple of years because he was the yeah. the guy that stayed because of the, after that. And mm-hmm. now it's the type of thing you see that on your average indie show now. You know, baby faces mm-hmm. and heels hugging each other after the match or something like that. And they go on, right. they, you know, they go on social media and thank each other for the great match and all that. And I don't think I need to get into that side of things and why some people look at that and go, "Why are you doing this on social media?" But that's why they ran for another well, time. Well, it was a dynamic shift in how wrestling was presented. And you can, for good or bad, you can lay that solely at the feet of the clique. Because all of them, Scott included, felt that, man, why are we still trying to act like it's 1975? You know? The fans know that it's a work. They don't know how much of a work it is, but they know it's a work. We're talking, this is years after Sheiky Baby and, and Dougie get busted smoking pot together. And, 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 and I think Sheiky had coke on him, didn't he? And this is yeah, years after weed, David think, von too, Eric, yeah, yeah Dave, David von Eric's death in Japan. There's been a lot of of things that have happened in the business at that point that even the most fervent believers of kayfabe, they just wanted to be true believers as fans, were starting to realize this isn't all in the up and up. We know these guys are friends when the cameras are, and so they all had this mentality of, well, let's not insult the fans' intelligence. Of course, I, being old school, think they went a little too far. And they had no control over the internet and what it did to expose the business. But this mentality of morally gray, no true baby faces, no true heels, that's, I think, pretty much square at the feet of the click at Scott Hall, don't you? I, I, I can see that because even Kevin Nash at the time as Diesel, he was kind of doing the quasi baby face, somewhat heel, where it's like he was still friends with Shawn Michaels, but he would be a heel in his matches nowadays they'd call it a tweener but you you've helped me see how that's a lame term to use but we don't need to get into that well i've 
thought it was done much better a few years later with Luger and Sting. With Sting right. as the pure baby face and Luger as, you know, but I digress. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But they were trying, I think, too hard to forge these different types of characters when really I think they can do what some of the international promotions would do, where it's like, yeah, okay, some of the heels might actually be friendlier to the baby faces depending on how defined their characters are. I'm, I'm hoping I'm making sense with that. Well, it, 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 it's like uh, I think you see it in real sports and, and competitive sports where you'll have an, a very famous player who will be universally respected because they're so good, but disliked by a lot of fans and other players because of their attitude. But there'll always be that one or two guys that are their teammates that are respected by the fans and are respected by other players who are like, oh, you're just reading the guy wrong. He's a good dude, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that was kind of what they were going for. I mean, I know like before Tom Brady became so hated, Tom Brady was pretty well liked by all the fans and, 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 and everybody across the league, even if you cheer for a team other than the Patriots. And when Randy Moss came in to the Patriots, everybody hated Randy Moss. Everybody hated Randy Moss and thought he was lazy and, 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 and could get away with stuff because he was so talented, such a superstar. And Brady like publicly defends him. He's like, no, nah, you guys just don't understand Randy. That's why I fought for him to come for our team to get him well you're a chicago guy that was true of jim mcmahon for years wasn't it oh yeah yeah we love jim mcmahon here but he was reviled anywhere else right and there were so many guys like walter payton loved jim mcmahon mm -hmm. went to his grave defending jim mcmahon when a lot of other people would say crap about him yeah, and, and I, everybody loved walter payton you yeah, know and, and i can tell you just about any jock any teenager in high school uh, in the ages they wanted to be jim mcmahon but he, he, oh, he was cool he was yeah, me cool yeah. Yeah, he had the cruiser sunglasses and the headband and the, whatever you would call that thing where it's kind of spiked on top but buzzed on the sides and then maybe a little long in the back uh, hair look. Yeah, he's a little bit of Billy Idol. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's probably a good example. I think that Jim McMahon is, is, is he was maybe a little bit of Stone Cold before Stone Cold, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. So really, at this time, we're going into circa 1996 here. Razor Ramon, he, I think at the time he had the record for the number of intercontinental title reigns there was like four maybe five times he was the ic champ and i diesel had already been the world champ i think he and michaels had been tag champions uh, for a while there as well and uh behind the scenes this is around the time eric bischoff got power in wcw and he wanted to sign away some of these hot names that vince was pushing to be his next generation, so to speak, the new generation. And Bischoff has already gotten Hogan and Savage in WCW by this time, and Nitro's actually Flair's, been on for about six months, I think. Yeah, Flair's back. Vader's at the, is at the peak of his, like, being perceived as a badass. They had a lot mm -hmm. of things going for him in WCW at the time, but they still yeah. weren't beating Vince. It was, and, and wrestling as a whole, I think, was down at that time, too. Yeah, yeah, it, it really and, and, was the Monday Night War that, that I think brought wrestling to new heights. And, and I do agree with Kev and Scott and them that wrestling had become a little state at that point. That as much as I'm an old school guy, I think you can take the old school mentality and apply it to the new cultural norms, but they weren't doing that. It was still mm -hmm. ultra cartoonish and just over the top. So like you said, just the idea that every, it seemed like every guy or every other guy on the roster had a job besides being a pro wrestler right there. It's like, come on, really? Right, right. And so many of the characters, they they were really just cartoon-like characters in many cases. You know, Hulk Hogan could get away with that because he was Hulk Hogan. 
But I mean, even Razor Ramon you know, was kind of a kind of a cartoon. Yeah, yeah. We always we already talked about how he was basically molded from a, a movie villain. Right. So yes, yeah. So anyway, we all know the story here, and we actually do go pretty in depth into the NWO, and I think it's uh, volume eight of Classic Wrestling mm-hmm. Memories, where, where we cover the NWO. So we don't really need to go into that much detail about what happened here, but Scott Hall came out during the middle of a match between Mike Enos and I believe it was Stephen Dunn, and he cut that promo kind of still in the Razor character. He didn't have the gold, but he still uh, kept the accent. And then the following week, Kevin Nash showed up, and the NWO is, is uh, off and running. And this is a return to Scott Hall being the villain and kind of like we said, he, he's he's razor without the without the gold and the the accent, but he's he's still kind of going back to the heelish razor. But he's still got the slick back hair. He's still chewing the toothpick. He still has the same kind of mannerisms and swag. And I think that speaks to what you brought up earlier that Razor Ramon is a character and Scott Hall as a person have become one and the same. They were almost inseparable. He mm-hmm. made Razor Ramon him. Yeah. And uh, but that that first year or so uh, of the NWO, I mean, we like I said, we talk about it more detail in volume eight. To me, that was like poetry because uh, it, it was the villains rising to power. The they're they're dominating. Baby faces are scrambling, trying to form their counterattack. And pretty much most of that first year, they lost here and there. But I think for the most t- part, Hall and Nash were the WCW tag team champions for the better part of a year. And then and Hogan yeah. was was the world champion, and it's amazing. You know, you have a heel group, you put on the belt, all the belts on them, and they get over. Amazing right. how that works out. And, and Scott Kev had to feel a little vindicated because it worked, and it worked so well. It, it ignited another boom period for wrestling, and it played into what kind of the sentiments they had. Why are we lying to the fans? And this is the first time in a long time. That this, this is right before the internet takes off. There was enough gray area in this angle that the fans could believe, oh crap, these guys are coming down from the WWE. They're trying to take over the company. Mm-hmm. They, they needed not just security, they had uh, supposed police officers, armed police armed. officers. Yes. Yeah. Cuffs uh, cover- and nightsticks and guns. Yeah, because that's how serious. Things were, as I like to say, you don't have to try to convince us that it's real. You just have to get us to forget that it's predetermined. And so, like I said, they had to feel vindicated because they're like, let's be a little bit more nuanced. Let's be a little bit more gray. And I don't think an invasion angle would work nowadays because so much has been exposed. But back then. Right. And and they've been done the death since that that inspired so many other heel stables coming in saying, no, oh, we want control. We're going to run the place. Yada, yada, yada. Right. Right. And of course, a big thing that comes out of this, and I, you know, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention it, was Vince being so mad because he felt the pressure for the first time from Turner is he, he's like, well, I own the Razor Ramon and Diesel gimmicks. So mm-hmm. I'm going to just bring in two guys and put them in the gimmick and the crans will be none the wiser. Well, all due respect to Glenn Jacobs and, and, and Rick Bogner, they're not Scott Hall and Kevin Nash. Right. We all know how well Glenn Jacobs did for himself as Kane, but it was just a proof, especially with those two. And another one, perfect example being uh, Undertaker himself, is it's the right gimmick going to the right person at the right time where only those people could play those parts. Only Kevin Nash could have been Diesel. Only Scott Hall could have been Razor Ramon, just like how only Mark Calloway could have been The Undertaker. And probably only Glenn Jacobs could have been Kane. 
And I don't want to speak ill of Rick Bogner because we lost him a few years ago too. He was not nearly as good in the ring uh, as, as Scott Hall. Rick did a good Razor Ramon impression. That's why he got to get Let's be honest. And so then this leads to litigation with suit with, I can't remember who sued who first. And then there was countersuits. But when it was finally all said and done, it speaks once again to what you said earlier about Scott becoming Razor Ramon when the judge finally said, no, right. you don't own the right, Vince, to a guy's personality. You may own the name. You may even own some of the bells and whistles that go with the name, like the gold razor blades on a gold chain, all that stuff. But the actual personality and the character traits in that regard, that's Scott Hall. And you can't sue him for that. You don't own it. Scott Hall owns it. Right. It, it just like when Kevin Nash was being Kevin Nash in WCW, but yet he was being Diesel in WWE. Literally, the only difference is the name and, and the right. theme music. Yep. And so I, I bring up to guys in training all the time. Me and Seth talked about this at length before we started recording in our prep for the show. The best and most successful guys in the business are the ones that take certain parts of their own natural personality and accentuate it in front of the camera for entertainment purposes. And then whatever that is becomes inexorably who they are in the eyes of fans. Scott Hall, whether you call him Scott Hall or Razor Ramon, it's him. Hey, yo, the toothpick, the swagger. That's Scott Hall. Yeah. Does that matter I, what you call him? Yeah, I, I'd heard that the hey, yo just came from that's how Scott Hall greeted people. Hey, yo. Yeah. <laughs> so it works. You look at all the different personas Scott was doing in the 80s to middling to fair success. Yes, a lot can be played on the fact that 15, 10 years later, he's really learned his craft, and this is why he's success in the mid-90s. But it's also about finding that character that really allowed him to accentuate his natural personality. Right. And it, it, and it fit what he already did in the ring, too. That's important. A lot of people forget that, too. What you can or can't do in the ring needs to be a reflection of your character. Right. Unfortunately, though, the, the time in WCW, I think that's really where the problems got worse because I don't want to say he was unchecked because he had his, his friends, but really I almost don't want to make this analogy because, because it's, it's so dark. But if you go back to the mid eighties in, in Texas and world-class with the Von Eric brothers, mm -hmm. you have a whole bunch of guys that are good looking guys. Women throw themselves at them. They're making good money and recreational goodies are right around any street corner. How's yeah, that story going to end? Yeah. You know, yeah, I think it was, it's the oldest time, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And I think it was a similar thing with Scott because you had a good looking guy making a ton of money and recreational goodies are around the corner. Mm -hmm. You can kind of see where the next chapter of that is. And unfortunately, and like we said, well, like we said, he already had these problems because of the earlier death of this other gentleman early in his, in, in his life. And then you've got the pressure of, of, of you're carrying this company in this hot angle on your shoulders. Yeah. And when you mean when you say good money, you mean good money. Remember, the, the, one of the things that Scott and and Kev did that had been done before, but they took it to a whole new level was the guaranteed contracts. Right, right. Where they were making yeah. money whether they worked or not. And right, we we can and, have the discussion as far as that would then discourage the idea of working hard. But it's also one of those things I can see how somebody would say, "Look, I paid my dues. You want my time." This is what I'm worth. I, I can see right. that uh, negotiation aspect as well. And the, the the money was insane for Kevin and Scott because they had this this clause in their contract. They were they were called uh, favored nations, which meant the only guy in the company that, that that could make more money than them contractually was Hogan. 
Mm-hmm. So they were the two highest paid guys after Hogan in the company. Even Goldberg and Giant, when they got on those huge runs with the company, were making less than Scott and Kev. And I, mean, I think it got to the point where weren't Scott and Kev, like, con- weren't they like contractually being guaranteed like $1 less than Hogan? Something like. and that, But then yeah. other guys would come in with big money. I shouldn't say come in. Other guys would get big contracts like the Flares, like the Stings and all that, who w- were probably making seven figures. Well, guess who then got a pay raise without having to do anything different? Right, that. simply because they couldn't have somebody else to contract that made gave them more. Hogan had it in his contract. He was the top paid star. Right. And then they had it in their contract that they were, he was the only guy that was paid more than them. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Of course, this might lead one to understand why this company went in, in into the red pretty quick. It got out of control. Because if you look at on the surface with the talent they had and the depth of that roster and the synergy of having this, this huge internationally recognized media cable company there is no reason why that company should have failed none whatsoever definitely and we we could do several volumes just on wcw alone but i think a lot of them would just be depressing as hell for me to have to relive but yeah but we don't need to talk about it for goodness sakes brian alvarez wrote a whole book about a couple of fall of wcw which (laughs) yeah twice which which documents it very well and exactly why it happened and what Mm -hmm. we're talking about is one of the things he mentions often i got that book when it was first available and i can personally attest how good it is so uh, i'm looking right now at my bookshelf and it's sitting right here on my bookshelf so (laughs) and this really was also the last that we saw Scott as a regular competitor for, again, those, those, those reasons. Plus, he had made money. He probably could have retired with what he was making at the time. Age is catching up with him at that point. He's going to be, what, mid-40s by then? Yeah, yeah, it would sound about right. He was born in, I think, 58. So uh, do the math. That would make him, what, I guess, by the time 2000 rolls around, yeah, yeah, 42, 43 years old. Yeah, and people um, didn't forget because he looked so old. When Harley dropped the belt to Flair at Starcade 83, he was, what, 42 years old, 43 yeah. years old? Yeah, younger than both of us. Seven. He looked 70. <laughs> <but> he <laughs> yeah. Right. And and really, I think, to his credit, given what he went through and all that, I thought physically Scott aged pretty well. Yeah, he had trouble keeping in shape when you get older, but that's what happens to all of us. I mean, right. if if you see him at that uh, Hall of Fame induction where he gave oh, that, good. yeah, yeah, the famous line about uh, bad times don't last, but bad guys do. Bad he looked, do, he looked yeah. just fine, and he was pushing 60 then. Right, but you have to remember, I mean, and you are much more knowledgeable on this than I am because you, you are your self-admitted TNA fan. He looked pretty rough in that run in the 2000s in TNA, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, because I remember him having a match with AJ Styles, and he he was probably wearing the same tights he wore in the WCW days, but you could tell he clearly was probably a good 20 pounds heavier and just not nearly as defined. And were there a couple of matches where it was, it was kind of obvious even the most casual observer, he was uh, impaired. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think so. And I think it was Brian Alvarez to kind of go back to the death of WCW book. Brian Alvarez has gone on record saying, if you can't have a good match with AJ Styles, then why are you doing this? <laughs> yeah. So, and, not but that, it wasn't so much a lack of, Paul's ability, it's just when you're on those recreational goodies, so to speak, that does interfere with and, and not just in wrestling, with, with all types of performing, you know, singing, acting, playing on stage or whatever. <laughs> Don't have to be a performer. Try that at your normal regular nine to five job, see what happens. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I mean that, I, it, I know, of course I think that led to that very infamous I've seen it before, that the indie show that he was booked on, I want to say it was like in Maryland or Virginia or somewhere. And I can't remember the time. I know it was sometime in the early 2000s. 
and he was like could barely stand. He was so impaired. Mm-hmm. You remember that? He came to the ring and, and was stumbling and had to be helped out of the ring. And it was just like part of it was embarrassing and part of it was sad. You know, it was embarrassing for me as a wrestler to have such a publicly made joke made of our business, but also sad because I'm seeing one of my brothers obviously literally dying right in front of my right. And yeah. it's not like Kev is not or sorry, Kev, not like Scott didn't have a support group or the money to get the help he needed. So, I mean, these problems we're talking about, this led to his, his marriage ending, to a separation from his children. And it's like, look, Vince's policy post the death of Eddie Guerrero to openly help pay for the, the rehab of any wrestler that used to work for him is well known. Scott could have availed himself to that. And I know Vince would have got him the absolute best rehab in the, in the world. Because mm-hmm. it ain't like Vince is hurting for money, you know? And it has worked. It's what it's got Sean Waltman clean and sober. It's what got Jeff Jarrett clean and sober. It's what got Road Dog clean and sober. Was that that policy by Vince? But Scott did not avail himself of it. I mean, it was going back to his early days, it's, it's DDP that saved Scott's life. Right, right. I don't want to delve too much into this uh, because I've had friends and family and such in my life that have struggled with issues like that. But one of the best quotes. I think I've heard about dealing with addictions and substance abuse and stuff like that was from Jake Roberts. And I have to clean up the language a little bit because it's because it's Jake. But <laughs> it, it was just like, uh, oh, wow, to get clean, all you have to do is just don't drink and go to meetings. Hell, if it was that easy, there wouldn't be any <laughs> drunkards, drug addicts. It's right. just, uh, well, it's, what, it's, what, what did he say in Beyond the Mat that was very, very poignant? He's like, it's like I didn't, I didn't wake up one day and say, hey, I'm going to be a crack addict. Yeah. Oh, oh, alcoholism. Yeah. Sign me up for that one. Right. Exactly. And Scott is right along there with it. Scott didn't wake up one day and say, oh, by the way, I'm going to be an addict. It just slowly over time. When you look at the the age catching up with them, the injuries, the the soreness that we go through as wrestlers, like you said, the, the availability on the road, that is definitely the dark underside belly of the wrestling. Yeah. Um, I think besides DDP reaching out and, and saving Scott, a lot of Scott's motivation to get clean and sober was that strained relationship with his kids. For those that don't know, his son Cody has entered the wrestling business. Yeah. And Scott in it realized that his name and his contacts could help his son in ways that he didn't have advantages when he got into the business. And, I, you know, Cody, I remember when he first broke into the business, was wrestling a lot of the smaller independents around here in Georgia and the Carolinas and Tennessee, because I believe Scott was living in Atlanta still at the time. Sounds about right, yeah. And uh, all due respect to the young kid, he's got his daddy's size and he's got his daddy's looks, but he does not have his daddy's in-ring ability. <laughs> yeah. Probably probably not the charisma either. Uh, no, no. But yeah. Scott would come to a lot of these shows and just he would just kind of stay in the background. He would never go out in front of the crowd. He didn't want the attention to be on him. Right. Makes sense. He wanted the attention to, on his son. And as a father myself, I can respect that. But uh, Two other quotes that, that, that come to mind, one's from Kevin Nash. Uh, about that, trying to explain addiction issues to people who aren't addicts, the, the regular people of the world, you might say, because people say that drugs are the problem. But when you're an addict, this is the Kevin Nash part I'm talking about. It's like you don't look at drugs as being the problem or the solution because it's part of that escape. It's that part of trying to get away from whatever pain or anguish they're having in the real world. And the 
other quote wasn't really wrestling, but it's from, I, I heard Johnny Cash say something like this, and I think I heard Superstar Graham say something about it, where it you have all that time on the road, and you want to look your best and be your best in front of this paying crowd, because you have no idea how much money or how much effort fans went to to go out and see you perform. So you got right. that weight on you. And really, in many cases, they take something so they can wake up. Then they take something so they can go out and perform. Then they take something to calm down after they're done performing. After Come down off the high, the natural high. Yep. And then they're taking something to go to sleep on top of it and then rinse repeat for years at a time. Yeah, that's a hell of a vicious cycle, ain't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think one of the saddest things about Scott's problems or that are the fact that Scott, and this is not a knock on the other guys in the clique, Scott probably had a better mind for the business than anybody else in the clique, including yes. Shawn Michaels. Yeah, yeah. I've heard so many people rave about he is one of the best there's ever been as far as just having that natural mind for what to do, when, and why. Yeah, and, and it's just it's not just, and I would dare say beyond the clique, he is one of the guys that was a top star in the business in his heyday who had one of the best minds for what we do. Right. He was one of those guys where if the story called for it, he had no problem losing. Mm -hmm. uh, a, a recent example, I, I didn't hear about it until after I saw it happen, but Hiroshi Tanahashi, one of the top guys in New Japan, he came out for a match during, I think it was the New Japan Cup, and he did the motion of flicking a, a toothpick at the camera because mm -hmm. early in his career, I don't know if he was still a young lion or, or, or not, but he had a match with Scott Hall, and mm -hmm. Scott Hall willingly put him over and put him over clean in japan right exactly so because he understood that this was one of the top rising stars in the in the nation there or in the territory to use the older uh, term and he knew that it was going to do wonders for tanahashi and probably wouldn't hurt him meaning scott much because he wasn't a regular in japan anyway yeah, he made, made his money over here in the states we talked about how scott was one of the key individuals and in understanding the the, the ambiguity the, the more realism on the storylines and characters. We talked about the guarantee contracts and the guys, a smaller select guys making more money because of Scott. I think one of the best examples of how smart he was and understanding how something would work and having his finger on the pulse of the pop culture of the young people, even though he wasn't young himself, is this the Crow Sting gimmick. He's the one that came up with that. Yep. I, I heard uh, Sting tell a story. He said Scott Hall just said, he came up to him and said, hey, yo, you should you should paint your face up like the crow, man. Yeah, I mean, it's like Scott always liked current pop culture. That, that movie, we've talked about it on Geekville Radio and on Examining the Dead. It was not a huge hit, but it was, it is, I would definitely say it's a cult classic, wouldn't you? Definitely, yeah. And, of course, it started out as a, as a comic book. So he understood that there was a large segment of the fans, younger fans of wrestling, that would would understand what they were going for. He uh, he saw the parallels to what they were trying to do with Sting as he was in the rafters, and he understood that Sting needed kind of a, a, an image change because the yeah, the happy surfer Sting wasn't going to work anymore with this storyline of the NWO. So he was smart enough to say, hey, yo, so correct me if I'm wrong. I think I've even heard Sting say before he didn't even know what the crow was when, when Scott told him about it. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, I believe, I believe so, yeah. So I think to wrap up for me personally, Scott Hall is never going to be in that same 
in-ring category as a Bret Hart or Shawn Michaels or a Flair, Steamboat, because he wasn't. I don't, but I don't think Scott would, would say that. But all the other things we talked about, the look, the size, the understanding of the business, the being involved in some of the most key important storylines that created a boom period for wrestling, he is without a question a Hall of Fame. Right. No bones about it. And and it's sad that he that he's gone, especially in light of the fact that he had cleaned his life up and he was looking good, like you said, when he got inducted to the Hall of Fame. Of course, those that don't know, he was having hip surgery, one of those lingering injuries, nagging injuries that we as wrestlers often deal with when our careers are over. And he, he got he developed a blood clot mm-hmm. because of the surgery and it made its way to his heart. And he had what three heart attacks, I believe. I think so. Really the depressing part of the story is that I believe he fell at his home and mm-hmm. didn't have a telephone around. And however the injury happened, he, he couldn't move and couldn't reach a telephone. So apparently he laid there for literally, I think, uh, a couple of days before he was found. Somebody found which, him? Yeah, which is you know, that's depressing as hell to think about somebody having to go through that. And like oh, said, my, mother-in-law, my mother-in-law falls all the time and I get on her when she doesn't have her phone on her. Right. I keep threatening her with the old, the old uh, medic alert. You know, I fall and I can't get up bracelets. Mm-hmm. You know, and of course she's proud. I don't need that. Well, mama, you keep falling and I don't mind coming to help and getting you up. But I, 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 I shudder to think of the idea that you're laying in the floor for hours to days at a time until you are able to move enough to get your phone and tell us. Mm-hmm. So I, I did not even hear that, but I, I'm sure that the, the hip, though the injury came from, from an accident, probably had a weekend tip because it was wrestling yeah i think i think that's fair or i think that's probable and i think that it's a you know as a person in the medical field myself now that my career in ring is over <laughs> it's a stark reminder that no matter how big and healthy a person is and no matter how much we have made significant strides in the medical technology field surgery is dangerous even the simplest surgery is a risk this is why mm-hmm. they ask you when you have simple what, what seems like simple procedures, like a colonoscopy, you're still getting put under to do that. This is why they still have you fill out consent forms and ask you, do you have a do not resuscitate statement? Mm-hmm. So I'm not trying to, to end this on, on a down note, but as a medical professional, understand you need to approach all medical things seriously because we have made a lot of strides. But Scott is a big dude, like looked healthy and, and turned the corner, beating his demons and then something as simple as falling down like that causes an injury, which leads to surgery, which leads to a blood clot that was ultimately his downfall. So that's it's kind of sad and, and, and sobering at the same time. No pun intended. Talking about Scott Hall and sobering. So I know we kind of ended on this emotional, depressing little pit that we've kind of put everybody in. But we're going to wrap things up here. Then. Well, let's end on a good note. What are some highlights of, 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 of Scott's career for that you would suggest to people go watch? Well, I think everybody knows about the ladder match from WrestleMania 10. I think sure. he had one at SummerSlam with Sean as well. Right. Uh, Where I, a, lot, I, a lot of insiders in the business joke that, that Sean had a match with a, with, a, with a ladder and Scott just happened to be in the ring at the same time. <laughs> something like, yeah. It was see, Sean, because of his size, did do all the heavy lifting match. But being a, a competitor myself, I don't think a lot of the people who make that claim understand what Scott did do in that match. There has to be a base, okay? Right, right. But anyway. Other things I would recommend is if you can find the vignettes as Razor Ramon. Those are very oh, when entertaining. They're, when, they're inter- when they're introducing them? Yeah, because back in those days, a lot of times WWE would 
hype somebody's debut for several weeks, weeks. Yeah. through pre-recorded vignettes. And that's what they did with, with Hall, with him driving a Cadillac with like the tiger striped interior. And so just kind of going off all those stereotypes of the yeah. Cuban with the white type. linen With the white linen pants and the Hawaiian print shirt. Right. Like he was in like South Florida somewhere. So those would probably be the main things. I, um, I would suggest the, the, the introduction to WCW, the yeah. interrupting of the Mike Enos-Steve Dunn match, the the spot they did, which we talked about in the NWO episode, where he and Kev attacked the main event, and, and Kev threw Rey Mysterio into the side of the, the trailer, dark. and mm-hmm. they took off in the in the limo, and, and Savage jumped on top of it and grabbed on the center. That's a great one. One that I really love because it's personally tied to me, but I think it's a good example of of what we we're talking about, Scott doing what was right for business at the time and and his understanding of psychology and stuff. The match, I believe it was Slamboree, 98 or 99. I won't say 99. Where it was him, 98. It was him, Kev, and Sean Waltman as X-Pac, or Six-Pac, that's what they called him in WCW, Six-Pac, yeah. against Piper, Flair, and Kevin Green, the, mm-hmm. the uh, also now passed away football player from the from the Panthers at the time. The way they sold for them, understanding it was in Charlotte, understanding that the the, the the NWO had just gotten win over winner win on on these guys and how they built up that match, calling calling uh, Fiper and Flair chuck holes in 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 the in the path to greatness of of the wrestling world and then the way they sold for Flair and put put them over clean by the way mm-hmm. at the end. There's that one spot. This is when they were playing up the fact that Piper himself had had hip surgery. And you could see the big scar come out underneath his trunks. And he and, and, and Hall start. And Hall starts limping around the ring, like making fun of, of, of Piper. And reaches over and slaps Piper's leg on, on the scar. And Piper reaches up and slaps I immediately slaps Scott all across the face in response. And Scott makes it look like he swallows his toothpick. <laughs> classic classic that's what scott hall brought him right you know? one other thing i would add to that i don't know how many matches it happened in but scott hall also had one of the best cells you'll ever see for the stone cold stunner like he, oh, yeah. he'll he'll yeah. sell that like he got hit by a cannon i remember i i had read one time scott had told guys man you ain't gotta have a million moves he goes i got like four moves i got a punch a kick the the fall away slam and the razor's edge that's it right but he told him, you need to find that one hold or move you do really well. And when you do TV, you grab that hold. You look right into the hard camera and, and work your character. He goes, for me, that's a simple arm bar. And I think that's, from a Hall of Famer, that's some really, really good advice that I agree with. Yeah, I mean, it, if you think about it, Scott didn't have that many moves. You know, he really didn't. Right, but they all counted. But they all counted, and they were all impactful. And when he did it, they, they made sense. Mm-hmm. Another thing that I remember him saying that – kind of shows the mind for the business that he had is he had talked about in interviews again i think it might have been with wade keller but he said if you're going to hit your finisher and it's not going to be the end of the match that rather than just simply have somebody kick out which could hurt that finisher in the future find a reason for there not to be a a cover like if you're the heel are you the ref yeah, or or gloat and pose and, and stuff like that to give the baby face that the uh, few extra moments that he could recover. Or if you're the if you're the heel, get your foot on the rope or something like that. Right. Or if you're the baby face and you hit the your finisher, then that's when the interference could happen. Or maybe you sell it like it kills you too, like it like it was. See, you're, yeah, last, you're too exhausted to even follow up yeah, with a couple. At least to a double down rather than uh, a pin right away. Right. 
And exactly. I, I actually think that's very sound logic. It's, it's not sound logic. It should be something that should be being taught to most guys in training, but it's not. <laughs> it's common sense, I guess. <laughs> I, yeah. One of my biggest pet peeves in training, and this happens a lot, is, oh, are you the baby face or are you the heel? Well, I'm the baby face. Then why are you putting your foot on the rope to break the count? A baby face should never reach for the ropes to break the count unless they're in a submission hole. Mm-hmm. Oh, I never thought about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's the kind of thing I think Scott Hall would tell guys, and they'd be like, oh. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's going to wrap up this edition of Classic Wrestling Memories. We'll be back sooner rather than later. We're going to talk the 2022 WWE Hall of Fame inductees as we do every year. So if you're listening to us for the first time, we are at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com. You can find us on most, if not all, podcatchers, wherever you You find your podcasts, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, you name it. Just do a search for Classic Wrestling Memories. You should be able to find us. And we are on social media. We're on Facebook at Classic Wrestling Memories. And you can also catch up on old episodes there uh, as well. And Train, if people want to talk to you about wrestling or Scott Hall or whoever, when can they, how can they get a hold of you? Always available on Twitter at CrazyTrain underscore JB. That is my handle across pretty much every social media platform that I have a account. Just do a search for crazy train underscore JB. All right. We're going to shut down the power here in the classic wrestling memory studios. And we'll talk to you folks again next time. Classic Wrestling Memories is part of the A1-Wrestling.com podcast family and can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com and at A1-Wrestling.com. The views expressed by the hosts and guests are purely their own and do not reflect the views of A1-Wrestling.com, any of its affiliates, or sponsors. Some media used in ClassicWrestlingMemories.com is the copyright of its respective owners, all rights reserved. One of the first wrestling memes I think I made, I should probably put it on the Classic Wrestling Memories uh, Facebook, but it was when the first Frozen movie was doing bonkers business, and I had a picture of Scott Mm. Hall, and the caption is, hey, yo, you want to build a snowman? (laughs) (laughs) 